so, but you know, our softball teams are still doing good. Uh, our co-ed team won 10 to 6. And I just think we're getting lazy is what it is. Because we get out there, we're like, oh, yeah, we're playing softball. Bing. And we're all just kind of lazy. We're not, like, playing hard. And so, you know, our, our scores are going down. But we're still winning. If we tried, we just, like, love it. We're awesome. Guys team won 22 to 16 this week. So they're doing awesome, too. All right. And uh, all of you should be in a small group. Sorry, I get told I always talk about softball. I talk about small groups. So you should be in a small group. If you're not, sign up, get in one. We can find you one you'll hopefully like and not hate. All right, why don't you guys stand up and read God's Word. <clears throat> this is Ephesians 2.8. And it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. Father, tonight I ask that we would understand that this grace that has been given to us uh, from a, as a gift from you, I ask that we would understand that and we would live our lives in such a way that we find our total value and worth in you and that we would then go and live before the rest of the world showing that you are our God and King. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, God has given all of us the ability, and this is a great ability, to assess the value of something and determine how much of our lives we are willing to spend and give towards that thing. Anytime you go out to buy something with your money, you have a finite amount of time that you will be alive on this earth. You have a finite amount of energy that you have while you're on this earth. And so if you work a job, you get paid a wage, you get a certain amount of money, which means when you go and buy something, you are giving a bit of your life for something. And so we look at things and we assess the value. How much am I willing to give of my life to this thing? Now, a while ago, there used to be this TV show on. I have no idea if it's still on. It's called the Antiques Roadshow. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Uh, people would take all their junky stuff out of their garage and bring it down, and they would say, oh, this is worth nothing, or oh, this is worth like a couple thousand bucks, stuff like that. So I'll show you a few of what we place value upon. This is a Norwegian violin. Okay? That is worth four to $5,000 only because it has a crack in it. If it didn't have a crack in it, it is worth $8,000. Now, this next one, this is an American Victoria desk from 1874. Now, how much of your life are you willing to spend for this? hundred bucks. You're like, it's a desk. I hate school. Nothing, right? <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, $15,000 is how much this is worth. $15,000. This is a Santa's sleigh. It actually has $69.95 written on the bottom in pen. Okay, it's a piece of junk, little plastic thing. It's beat up. It is worth three to four thousand dollars. I don't know who's going to pay that because it's obviously not me. Unless we could like light it on fire and anyway. Uh, this is a number three parlor clock. They have placed the value on this clock at four to five thousand dollars. The person who bought this clock paid sixty bucks. That's a, see, that's a much better deal, right? And so here, here's the last one. This is the last one right here. How yeah? How much would you give for that? Yeah. <laughs> You're like nothing. Right. Uh, this this is actually what have I told you. It was like uh, made by Dr. Seuss. Uh, maybe a little more. Right. Twenty five thousand dollars. Twenty. I know. I know. For that thing, monstrosity. Twenty five thousand dollars. Now you kind of keep that in mind a little bit of, of what we place value upon, of what we are willing to give our lives for. Then eventually value what is Jesus's life worth. Now, again, I talked about this last week. We're, we're entering this thing called Passover. And Passover is a holiday of commemorance and remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery and bondage and death in Egypt. Have you ever seen the movie The Prince of Egypt? It kind of does an okay job with this. Although Moses wasn't 20, he was like 80. So that's kind of really wrong there. Uh, at this point, what happened was God sent a succession of plagues upon the Egyptians for how they treated God and how they treated God's people. 
Now, the final and most devastating plague was the killing of each firstborn male child that was not in covenant relationship with God. This was shown, if you were in covenant relationship with God, that you, you had uh, the blood of a lamb and you put it on the doorposts and the door frames of your home that showed that your family was covered by the blood of the lamb. If you didn't have that, it showed you didn't have faith and you didn't trust God and the life of the firstborn would be taken. God does all this so that the Egyptians will let his people go from slavery into freedom. This is a memorial of that event that they now celebrate every single year when God passed over his children and spared them death and brought them life and took them out of slavery and led them into freedom. Every year now, after this, after this event takes place and they start to remember this event, these lambs that were sacrificed during the Passover, they would pick out these Passover lambs on a Monday for the Friday sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So it tells us Jesus is our Passover lamb. And what you see today, this is called the triumphal entry. People call this Palm Sunday. But actually, in historical accounts, this actually probably took place on a Monday. And so Jesus now goes into Jerusalem as in the entire world's Passover lamb, and he is chosen and picked out on a Monday, Monday for the Friday sacrifice that is coming up. He has been set aside as the Lamb of God to die at the right time in the right way, just like he said he would. Now, Passover is, historically, it is enormous. Uh, there are a quarter million sacrifices being offered on Passover. The amount of blood that flows out of the temple is just staggering. And it all foreshadows Christ. Uh, one family, uh, one family is probably about 10 people. So one sacrifice for 10 people means that during this time, two to three million people are gathering into Jerusalem, packing the walls. It is a large national gathering. So turn to John chapter 12. And I'll tell you, this is kind of what's going on at this point. Jesus has just finished one of his greatest miracles, besides his own resurrection, obviously. He's raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. The result is the religious people want him dead because they don't like that, so they put a bounty on his head. And what you see now is that Jesus rides into this with great courage and great conviction and personal strength in front of thousands of eyewitnesses. So John 12, 12, this is where we're at. If you're new here, we go through the, we're going through the book of John, so this is where we're at this week. John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now see, the great crowd hears this just like our day. The best way for news to get out is like this good gossip or bad gossip or whatever you want to call it. It's like, I heard this, I saw this, you got to see Jesus. The guy is just completely unbelievable. In our days, we have advertisers that try and do this. And they're everywhere. They send you email and junk mail and get commercials on TV and things come to your mailbox. And I don't know who put me on the email list, but if they're in heaven, we're going to have words. Okay, and Jesus is going to have to walk him and go, separate, because it is not cool, all the junk mail that I get. I'm a little irritated all about it. In our world, we find a way to start to ignore all of those things with like spam filters, and we just shred that stuff, and we go on to the national do not call registry, and we try and get away from all these things so we don't have to deal with it. But when a friend comes up to you and a friend says something by word of mouth, you're more inclined to believe it. If you get a funky chain letter in your email that says, so-and-so was raised from the dead, you don't quit your job and go find this person because you really don't care. Right? And, and don't forward those things either. Okay, because I, I don't need it. And, amen? Nobody else wants them, right? Right. Don't forward them. Don't forward these things to say, if you love Jesus, you'll send this to everybody in your mailbox. Just don't. Just delete it. I go delete, and I think Jesus goes, good for you. I know you love me. I don't need you to send everybody an email to let me know that you love me. I'm good. Okay. But, but if your best friend comes up to you, and your best friend says, I was dead, and I stunketh, and now I'm alive again. 
you have much more tendency to believe that and to listen to what he's going to say. And so through social networks, people are coming to see and hear Jesus. They, they come to meet him. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting. This is Psalm 118. Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, at first, this looks great. But what they're really doing is they're trying to tell Jesus what to do. They say, save us now. Blessed is the king of Israel. I mean, that's the key. They want a king. And when do they want this king? Now. Exactly. Save us now. They think Jesus is supposed to come in. He's supposed to declare war on Rome. They want to fight. That's what they want. And they bear palm branches. Palm branches are for receiving a military hero or a king. In our day, when someone comes back from a war, you know, we throw them these parades and everybody dumps paper out their windows on them. Some poor guy's got to clean it up. And these days, it's palm branches. And they say, save us now. And they're just like people in our present day that have a whole bunch of agendas and they're happy to come to Jesus as long as he furthers what they want him to do. And what people really want is they want a, a political messiah or a financial savior or a sexual savior or a theological savior, whatever. They anticipate Jesus coming and they give him their agenda and they say, do this. These people are singing and they're shouting and they're welcoming and oh, it looks so great, but people's hearts are very fickle. And when Jesus doesn't do their agenda, one week later, they're shouting something else. What are they shouting? Kill him, crucify him. He didn't do what we wanted him to do. Let's get rid of him. And that is how it is when you and I come to Jesus and we have our own agenda. We have to decide what we value. We have to decide if we're going to honor Jesus' agenda or ours. And when it's yours, you will end up hating him because he's not going to do what you want him to do. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. This is Zechariah 9.9. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. This is culturally important. When a leader came into town on a donkey, it's for the purposes of peace. If he came in on a horse, it was to stir up an army for war. And so in Zechariah, and John quotes it, he says, Don't be afraid. Why? Because your king, he is coming on a donkey. He's coming for the purposes of peace, in humility. Jesus doesn't come to liberate Israel from Rome. He comes to liberate them from their sin. He comes for the purpose of peace. So verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So now after Jesus' death and his resurrection, they're able to look at all the things that took place, all the prophecies, everything Jesus said, and now it makes sense, which is just like life for you and I because we will only typically know God's will in hindsight. People say all the time, I don't know what God's will is. I'll tell you what God's will is. God's will is that you love him and that you walk in what he says. That's God's will. What does the next 50 years of your life look like? I don't know. I don't know. But you will walk with God and you love your family and you love other people and you serve people. And you'll look back every few years and go, oh, wow, that's what God was doing. That's amazing. In the middle of it, we have faith. and We know that God is good and God is gracious and God is kind. And when God wants us to see it, we will see what he was doing. Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So thousands of people, they're coming to see Jesus. The religious people see this as a problem. They're like, if he keeps going, we're going to be out of a job. This is terrible. Their dilemma is essentially our dilemma. Do we love Jesus or do we oppose him for our own self-interest? Again, what do we value? See, the biggest problem with religious people of that day is that they set up this theology of how everything was supposed to happen. 
And I pick on this a lot because it's a, one of the biggest selling books, so I just pick on it all the time. But this whole Left Behind series, I will tell you something, warning, you cannot be dogmatic about something that has not happened yet. This is what the religious people of the day did. They said the Messiah couldn't be Jesus because he's not coming like we think he should. This, he can't be the Messiah. A Christian is supposed to have two hands, metaphorically speaking. Okay? If you only have one hand, you can still be a Christian. I'm talking metaphorically, okay? Metaphorically, you have two hands. This is facts and I think. Facts and I think. Fundamentalists, they come in and they will put everything in this fact hand. It is like, and it has some good things like Jesus is God, salvation is only in him. You know, man is sinful. That, that all goes here. And, but then they also start throwing things in here like all Democrats go to hell and uh, King James Version only and rock music's of the devil. And country music is of the devil, so that can stay here, you know, and, and, and your eschatology, your study of the end. Now, liberals come in, and they put everything over here. And they say, okay, well, maybe Jesus is God, maybe he's not. Maybe Jesus is the only way to salvation, maybe he's not. Maybe, and everything comes over here, and it's a maybe. A Christian is supposed to have two hands. In this hand, you put Jesus is God, salvation is only found in him. And over here, you put things like your political affiliation and what version of the Bible you're going to read and, you know, what kind of music you like. Country music, like I said, still should be over here. And, and, your, and your eschatology, your study, that, that goes over here. After it happens, after the end takes place, then you can move it to this hand. But until then, it's over here. All the Bible scholars for the first coming, they were wrong. All of them were wrong. And I'm not saying don't study, but when I first became a Christian, I had three questions, like three. Now I got three million. And every time I study more stuff, I, I have more and more questions. Christianity without study is worthless, but I know that this side of heaven, I'm never going to connect all the dots. I'm never going to get everything hammered out. That's why God calls us sheep, because we're like, bah, you know, we're just a little dumb, okay? When you study, make sure your studies always go to, do I trust Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Do I follow Jesus? It is all about Christ because he is the one who knows where this thing is going. So we trust him. Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. Now remember that John wrote to Greeks. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all writing to a particular audience. John is completely different. He is writing to Greeks. One thing they all have in common is this entry into Jerusalem. And John is the only one who mentions the Greeks. Passover, it was for Jews. And so John's writing to Greeks and he's saying there were Greeks, Jews, Greek people who actually believed that the Hebrew religion. And now this is a big deal. This is a big commitment. If you're, if you're a Greek and you're going to be a Jew, because if you're a guy, what do they have you do? Anybody? Got to get circumcised. That's a big commitment. Right? It's like, okay, I want to follow the God of Israel. What do I got to do? Well, you got to do this. I don't want to follow the God of Israel. I want to go follow the... That's, that's a big deal. I'm, I'm sure when, when Abraham got the covenant and God said, we're going to chop your foreskin off, I'm sure Abraham was like, Noah got a rainbow. You know, can I get a rainbow? It seems so much better. It's a big commitment. Okay, so when they, yeah. They came to Philip, who was from beside it in Galilee with the request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And I think this is really funny. Because, you know, they, these guys come in, they go, we, we want to meet Jesus. And here you see how churches kind of get their structure. You know, one guy just can't go tell Jesus what's going on. It's like, well, I'll get this guy and this guy and we'll go get a community together and we'll figure it out and then someone will talk to Jesus. 
And it's like, it's like churches do this today. It's like, oh, you got an issue? Well, well, the 46 of us will get together and we'll talk about it and we'll figure it out and we'll come back. It's just, it's nuts. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, Jesus again predicts his death here. And this is a paradox because if you were talking to Jesus and you saw what was happening in his life at this point, you would say, Jesus, you are now it. Everything is going great. Lots of people. Things are going well. Why would you die? You've got momentum. Why don't you heal and preach and live? And Jesus says, no, the way mankind is going to be saved is through his death and his resurrection. So Jesus gives these statements about following him. Verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it. And for us, this is crazy talk. You know, he, he says the problem is we love our lives too much, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You get through by not loving your life, what you value. Do you value Christ more than yourself? Whoever serves me must follow me. You want to be important? Good. You've got to become humble. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And Jesus does what he always does is he inverts the common sense of how the world works, and he stands it on its head. In our world, we are taught from junior high, high school, and college this whole thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You guys ever heard of Maslow? Yeah, okay, go to school more. You'll hear about Maslow. Maslow works like this. He says, on the bottom, everybody has body needs. This is like food, shelter, cable TV, TiVo, you know, the, the essentials of, of what you need. Then you have security needs, and this is like what children need for security. You have social needs. This is like your relationships. You have ego needs. This is self-respect. And on top of it all, the greatest need, he says, all human beings have is self-actualization. Be all you can be. Show the world your glory. And when we think like this, it means it's all about us and it's not about God. It is about how good we can be and not about how good God is. It's about what we can do and not what God can do. It's not standing in awe of God, but it's standing in awe of our own potential. Now, has this crept into the church? Yes. Yes, it has. They say, love Jesus. He'll make you rich and he'll make you happy and he'll make you famous and he'll make you powerful and he'll make you a king. But if he makes you a king like him, he was crucified. It's the kind of king he was. Jesus says you get by by not loving your life. You serve others. Why? Then what? Then the Father will honor the one who serves me. All glory belongs to the Father. And as we serve, he doesn't leave us without dignity. God the Father gives us his dignity by grace. Jesus doesn't strive for fame. He seeks to serve the Father. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is not self-absorbed. He is not self-actualized. He knows he's going to die a brutal, painful death in just a week. He knows that's what's happening. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And I love how Jesus does this. He totally ignores all the praise from men and he waits to hear from the Father because that's what he values. Now you, if you live your life this way, you may give your life to God and you may never receive any glory at all in this life. You may have to wait till you are dead and you stand before the Father. And God looks at you and God says, well done. Well done. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it, that's the voice, said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And this means that the cross becomes the issue. 
Paul says he does all for the sake of the cross. The whole world and even churches are filled with the conjecture of men. How I can get rich and how I can get that house and that car and that girl and be happy and everything's going to work out and conquer your Goliath and how I can be significant. But not much is said about Jesus and Him crucified and Him lifted up. I'll tell you, thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, we gather in this place because of the cross of Christ. Because that is the place where God fully reveals Himself and His plan. If you've been around here any length of time, you realize I don't talk about people, us, a lot, unless it's to make fun of us because I think we're, we're comedy. I talk a lot about Jesus. And a lot of places, they start to preach all that you have to do. You know, and you feel like you never do enough and work enough and love enough and give enough. You know why? Because you don't. There you go. The issue is always Christ because Jesus was good enough. And Jesus did work hard enough. And Jesus did give enough. That is why we need Jesus. I mean, did, Jesus did the things that we could never do. And so Jesus loves us and he trades our sin for his perfection. He trades our falling short for his measuring up. And if we should strive for one thing in our lives, it's that God the Father would get his glory and Christ would be lifted up. And if your life at some point looks like it's going okay and people go, hey, how come your life is going okay? You say, you know what, it's Jesus. He came and he changed me. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. For what you value. That's what he says. This is the way the church has always gone forward, never focusing on us, but focusing on Christ. Christ lifted up, people get drawn to him. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And what they do is they start to quote Daniel chapter 7. And what they're trying to do is get into a theological debate with Jesus. And I love Jesus because he just ignores them. It's like, stop twisting scripture, I'm tired of you. And Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. So they want to start arguing theology, and Jesus goes, look, you're only going to have me just a little bit longer. He says, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When you have finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. He says, I'm not arguing, you trust me, you follow me. He finishes and he hides. This actually concludes Jesus' public ministry. From this time more, Jesus basically speaks with his disciples. And so John starts to reflect on Jesus' ministry. Uh, verse 37, it says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, there is a book written a while ago, and every once in a while books come out that, that say this. They say, everybody can become a Christian if the gospel is presented right. Well, that's a scary proposition, because then whose head does that lay on? Mine and yours. You know, we've got to do it right. I tell you, John's a good Bible teacher. <laughs> he contributed a few books, right? And in the book of John, he says they still would not believe in him. Now, if John's a good Bible teacher, I would venture to say that Jesus is even better. I mean, I don't want to overstate my case here or anything, but Jesus just might be the best. Maybe, you know? And what happens? Not everybody believed. Judas doesn't believe that some people in this crowd didn't believe. What, did Jesus not read the book and not learn how to seal the deal? Verse 38 says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, it's Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Some people are never going to get it. But does that mean we should ever stop speaking? No. No. And Isaiah, verse 41, it says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So the God that Isaiah sees is Jesus, is Jesus. 
Now, you see this whole thing where people just won't believe in God's prophets? You see this all the way back in the Old Testament. You have Jeremiah. Jeremiah, when he starts his ministry, he's probably a teenage kid. And he's going out talking to people. They're like, thus says the Lord. You know, as his voice cracks and he, and he does that thing. You, you get to Isaiah. And Isaiah says, and God says to Isaiah, you know what? You're going to preach. And Isaiah's like, great. You know, and he, okay, to who? God says, everyone. Well, that's awesome. Who's going to listen? No one. Well, that's not so good. How long do I got to do this? Forever. It's like, ah, oh, that's not fun. Right. But you will give glory to the Father because you did what you were called to do. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Now, that's a great statement. And yet John then goes on to indict them. He says, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. Let me translate that for you. They valued the praise of men more than the praise of God. These guys are selfish and they're cowards and they're hypocrites. And you know what? They're just like us. They're just like us. I'm going to beat up on you guys for a minute because God, when I was going through this, kind of beat up on me. And it just rolls downhill. Okay, so you're going to get it to you. They're just like us. They want Jesus' love and forgiveness, but they didn't want the inconvenience. You know... If we tell people about Jesus, you know, maybe our family's going to think we're freaks or our friends will think we've lost our minds or our coworkers will think we've gone nuts or something. That's a lot. Would God really want us inconvenienced? I mean, Jesus dies for us. And in our culture, we get this quiet, amputated Christianity where people are afraid to speak for him. You know, this year in America, 3,000 churches will close. Church attendance is down 20% per capita over the last 100 years. The average church in America is 70 to 80 people. Most church plants fail in the first two years. 80% of church plants fail in the first two years. This, at the end of this month, we will be launched one year. One year. So don't let me down. I'm not, it's not on your head. I'm, I'm just kidding. You know. uh, many, I think there's many reasons for, for this. But I think a large part is silent, passive, hard-hearted Christians who refuse to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. And they say, well, I'd love Jesus to go to the cross for me as long as it doesn't inconvenience me. And I'm not talking about holding signs. I'm not talking about protests. I'm talking about you living your life so people know the love of Christ because of how you live. I mean, we built a whole theology trying to get away from having to do anything. We call this the personal relationship with Jesus. And that's not in Scripture. I mean, yes, God saves you. It is personal where he saves you, but it's meant to then become a public matter. It's not just a private issue. People say, well, I don't pray with people, and I don't love people, and I don't help people, because religion is very private. It's between me and God. It's just Jesus, way down deep in my heart. You can't see it because it's really deep, like something you stepped in. You know, it's deep. I mean, seriously. Meanwhile, people around us, they're hurting, they're lost, and they're going to hell. The issue is that we are supposed to be a conduit through which God's grace and God's truth and God's love and God's story flows to the world around us. Some Christians won't even talk to other Christians about Christ. They won't go to Bible studies or small groups. You should sign up for a small group. You know, their church is on TV. We all know people like that. Don't raise your hands and point anybody out, by the way, if they're here. You know, I mean, I can't judge people's hearts. Uh, that's not my job. But I sometimes wonder, do these people really even know Christ? Because it's like saying, I, I love my wife. I just never talk to her. I just never do anything with her or talk to others about her. I never do anything for her. You will never see us together because my love is just way down deep in my heart. I'd get divorced. My wife would leave me if I was like that. 
Your marriage to Christ is a public issue that's supposed to be demonstrated by how you live and shown to the world around you. As the Father sent the Son, so they send us into the world. That is what we should value. And I know when I say this, the thoughts go through all of your head about those crazy Christians who are out there always making a mockery of Christ's name, and it's like, oh, I don't want to be associated with those people. I know. Those people should all just shut up and fall off the face of the earth because they're ruining it for the real Christians, okay? But you are called to redeem Christ's name. You are called to live in such a way that they know who Christ really is, not like these whack jobs you see everywhere. Guys, you know and I know there are people in our lives that we are supposed to be talking to. They're messing up their whole life, whether they're married and it's their marriage or, or kids or their finances or they're drinking too much at school or after school and they can't get anything together. Maybe some of them, their lives are going okay, but they're arrogant and they're prideful. And we know that at some point Christ should be the topic of conversation, but we evade. Why? It's what we value. It is what we value because we love the praise of men. And we don't want to turn off a family member or a co-worker. And I am not talking about being rude, but speaking when the opportunity arises. I mean, I, sometimes I struggle because from our relationship uh, network that we just have in here, people around you should hear the gospel ten times over. Ten, uh, honestly, th- every, every service and probably every church, if, if relationship networks work, should be packed wall to wall because of our networks of friends we have around us. And where are most of these people that, that we know? At home, they're doing nothing, watching TV, watching the game, or whatever. I mean, heaven forbid that Christ's death actually causes us some difficulty. You know, I, I don't say that to shame you, because hopefully you know me well enough by now that that's not who I am. But I'm telling you, we have to get away from this self-centeredness where only, we only value ourselves, because God is being dishonored, and many times His children don't act like they don't care, because it's not what we value. We should have a burden upon us. Some people will never, ever know Christ, but some will. Every person here who calls yourself a believer, you are that because somebody told you about Jesus. Whether you read in a book or somebody talked to you, somebody inconvenienced themselves enough to tell you about Christ. It is why we're here. here. It is a privilege to tell other people about Jesus. You don't have to, you get to. I don't have to tell you about my wife all the time. I get to. And it ends me, earns me lots of points when I go home, too. I just, it's great. But my wife, she is a joy, and that is why I talk about her. I'll tell you this. Christ loved me. He opened my deaf ears. He has shown me kindness. He has made it so I can see. He has overwhelmed me with his grace. Why would I not want to talk about that? Why? You might be inconvenienced. You might offend people. I do. Sometimes, don't really mean to, but sometimes it happens. People may not like you. Some people don't like me. I don't know. (laughs) But you have to give up your glory and your honor, and you have to give up your life to actually gain it. I mean, think about this. Would you rather have the God of the universe say to you, well done, or would you rather have men look at you and say, gee, you're smart, or gee, you're cool, or we wish we were like you? Verse 44, it says, Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus points to the Father. The Father points to the Son and says, It's all about the Son. And you want to know God and you want to know Jesus and you want to know your Bible and the Holy Spirit and the Father and yourself and history and wisdom and knowledge. You know Jesus. 
That's who you have to know. Jesus says, As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So every word, inflection, tone of voice, just as the Father commands, I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. It comes down to Jesus and Jesus alone and us not being ashamed to confess him before men because our faith is a public issue. It's a public issue. And when we realize the grace that has been given to us, we are people who must respond. It is very easy sometimes to speak about Christ to other people in a room like this where you can say all the the weird Christian words you want to say. But the Father has sent the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit to send us into this world to display what is of value. And I will tell you what is of value. It is Christ. It is not a freaky Dr. Seuss statue. Okay? It is Jesus. He is what is of value. And we must be a people who take that calling seriously. I am not saying that every conversation you get in, you've got to be like, oh yeah, that's a nice car. Have you heard about Jesus? You don't, it it is when the opportunity arises. There are times and places where it comes up and it's perfect. It is perfect. And God will provide you those opportunities. But you have to be willing to speak about what is of value to you. Is the praise of men or the praise of God more important to you? That's the question. That's the question. It is why we come to communion every single week. Because at communion, we realize that Christ placed great value upon us, not because we are so good, but because He is so good. And He comes and He redeems us. So we take that cracker and we break it and we dip it, the, dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of His body that was broken and His blood that was shed, so we would also understand that we now have value in Christ and He is the only thing of value. So we worship Jesus through communion. And we're going to worship uh, Jesus through prayer. There'll be some deacons in the back of the room. And if you are someone who has only valued yourself and not valued Jesus very much, you need to pray with one of them. They would love to introduce you to Jesus. I mean, if you are are in a place and, and you love the praise of men more than the praise of God, pray with them. Pray with them. There is a great difference in your life that could take place when you love and follow Christ. So we're going to worship God through prayer. We're going to worship God through song. The, the band's going to come back up. And Sean's going to move this monstrosity for me. And as we do some of these songs, take a moment. Take a moment. And, and figure out, as, as we sing and as you pray where you're at, say, God, you know, where have I valued the praise of men more than I have valued you? And we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back of the room. And we worship God through fellowship, where you guys talk to each other and you hang out and you make me kick you out at 9 o'clock because you're still in here, which is okay. Which is okay. Fellowship. We spur one another on to works of following Christ. You know, we were created to do these good works. We're not saved by them, but we were created to do them, to display what we value. And I hope... I hope that tonight God speaks to your heart and you value Christ above everything else because that is what is important. Um, James is going to come up and we are going to pray. I value you.
Thanks. <laughs> All right, well, you guys pray with me. God, we, uh, we are. We're just thankful that, that you are so good that you find value in us, that you put value in us, God. And I pray that, that we would be a people that seek your glory over our glory or over glory of the people around us, God, but that, that we would focus on giving you the glory, that we wouldn't be so self-centered and so thinking only about ourselves to miss out on what you have for us. Pray that, that we would live that to give you glory and that we wouldn't just seek to do that in these walls or, or at church, God, around people that we're just comfortable around. But everywhere we go, when we go to school, work, God, when we're everywhere, that we would seek to give you the glory and that you would that you would reign in our lives and that we would be able to share that, that good news of redemption that you've given us to everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>